Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Milan Tambe. Milan is Professor of Computer Science and Director of the Center for Research and Computation in Society at Harvard University, as well as a Director uh, of AI for Social Good at Google Research India. Milan, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here. I am very pleased to have you on the show and looking forward to learning a lot more about your work. Before we dive into that, yeah, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work at this intersection of AI and social good. So I have been working in AI for the past, uh, you know, if I count my PhD days, uh, 35 years, it's unbelievable uh, that it's been this long now. Wow. And, you know, after getting my PhD, focusing on this area of AI called agents and multi-agent systems, where essentially it's an idea of multiple agents interacting with each other and modeling social interactions of this type. About 15 years ago or so, I started focusing on problems related to direct social impact. And I realized that this is something that gives me great joy. It also is, is not only something where I can see direct impact, but also allows me to advance AI research in interesting ways. So I'll give a very concrete example uh, as a motivating example, uh, but work has expanded since then. I grew up in the city of Mumbai in India, and the shadow of 9-11 around 2005 was very large. You know, we were all shocked at that point. And there were attacks uh, in, in Mumbai, including on a train where there were some terrorist bombings where my mother was actually in the train. And these sorts of events, um, I mean, she was safe. She got down, nothing happened to her. But these sorts of events led me to sort of think about how can we contribute towards uh, public safety. At that point, the LA airport had approached us to say, can we improve placement of checkpoints and canine patrols and so forth? So this is, you know, now you can imagine 15 years ago. And so at that point, we said, well, we can apply game theory as a way of randomizing checkpoints and patrols and so forth uh, with the LA airport police. And uh, that ability to show that we can actually use AI directly in the real world led me to realize that it feeds very interesting and new research problems that people hadn't thought of simultaneously allowing us to see direct impact in the field. And the work is now expanded from public safety more into wildlife conservation, public health, working with uh, social work and domains of that type. Mm -hmm. And in our pre-conversation, you made this really interesting comment that I'd love for you to recap about the relationship between the application of AI in a setting like social impact and, and social good and kind of fundamental innovation in machine learning. Tell us a little bit about how you think about the relationship between those. So in my view, it is possible to have this work going on in social impact which while simultaneously advancing AI research, they're not only not opposites, but on the other hand, these social impact problems seem to fuel new kinds of AI research that doesn't traditionally uh, come up. A concrete example is um, 
when we talk about big data, I mean, since around 2008 or nine, you know, in the computer science departments, there's sort of the sense that there's big data, big data. And when I'm working with these domains involving social impact, often we, are strug- we struggle with data. There's not that data available. And so the innovation then is how do you work in these domains when there's limited data? What kind of data to collect? And that's part of the AI research challenge that we struggle with. And this is where uh, we can't take standard techniques that are available in the literature from the papers and directly apply because the data is just not there. The data is noisy, all sorts of things where we have to take a, a different perspective on the problem. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in describing the project with the LA airports, uh, a theme that you mentioned in our pre-conversation as well, and that is that the application of AI to these kinds of problems is often interdisciplinary in the sense that you're pulling in techniques from like game theory and other places. I guess it seems obvious that applying AI to social impact would be interdisciplinary more so than, you know, applying it in a vacuum, duh. But, you know, tell us a little bit more about, you know, the way some of these things come into play. No, this is absolutely a wonderful uh, observation. This work is fundamentally interdisciplinary. We are working with uh, conservation scientists. We'll be working with uh, social workers on the ground. So in all of these cases, there's so much to learn. Our work has fundamentally been with nonprofits around the world, uh, whether it's homeless uh, youth shelters in Los Angeles or public health organizations in India or wildlife conservation organizations like WWF, WCS, and so forth. We view our work as really understanding the challenges that they face on the ground and then enabling a better use of their limited resources to accomplish the goals that they have. And so this is a a, a partnership whereby we are not coming in saying we as computer scientists already know what the solution technique ought to be. And we are going to come to you and tell you that this is the solution you should apply. So we are not married to the tool. We are we are starting from we're going to start from the problem, and then build up the solution technique. And so going to the point you know that we were discussing earlier about new problems coming up this way with respect to the challenge we worked on the home youth experiencing homelessness. This problem was brought to us by our colleagues in social work, uh, you know. And so this is kind of a, this in, going back to the theme of interdisciplinary collaboration. Mm-hmm. It's them that brought the challenge to us saying, look, you know, this is a problem where we have to spread information about HIV prevention amongst these homeless youth. Let me take a step back and have you yeah, describe yeah. this project and what the aims were in a little bit more detail. So the problem is, there are 6,000 youth who sleep on the streets in a city like Los Angeles every night. Uh, it's a shame, but that is the truth. And so these are youth between age of, let's say, 13 to 24, something like that. And the rates of HIV in this population are known to be 10 times the rates of normal housed population. And the question then is, how do we spread information about HIV amongst this population to reduce HIV risk behaviors? And so the way the drop-in centers do this work is that they will bring in peer leaders, key people who are maybe highly popular in the population, because you cannot go and talk to every one of those 6,000 youth. So you bring in key people, you talk to them about HIV risk behaviors, HIV testing, things of that nature. 
and hope that by word of mouth, the information will spread. So they'll talk to their friends, their friends will talk to their friends, and information will spread in this fashion. The question for us is, can we have this be done in a more effective fashion than what they have done, which was to bring in the most popular youth? And so the AI challenge here is, given a social network of these youth, can we figure out who are the key nodes in the network who, if we seed uh, them with information, will spread the information in the most, uh, you know, in the broadest possible fashion. This is somewhat like viral marketing uh, that we are very familiar with, except that we are now trying to use it for spreading information about HIV and getting people to do HIV testing and reduce uh, HIV risk behaviors like uh, condomless sex and things of that kind. And Okay, so we we took on this challenge. So how do you identify key nodes who we will bring in? These are youth who we will bring in instead of what the te- whatever techniques they were using. We are going to identify these youth in a different way using our AI algorithms, using the social network structure. We're not going to use any private information, just what the network looks like. So what were they doing before? So they would just say, okay, who's the most popular youth in the words of, uh, in terms of social networks, these high degree nodes, you know, the nodes that have the most numbers of edges. Uh, who, uh, so, so that, I mean, it makes sense. Except that, that on some, some data set or just asking people in interviews, you know, who's the most popular person, you know, or something like that. And that's right. And, and they have a sense of, you know, a, a youth who's like the most pop, you know, who are the most popular youth uh, in yeah. the drop-in center. And for us, the question is, is there a better set? Because it makes total sense, right? That you would bring in the most popular people. If you talk to them, then they're going to spread the information in the widest possible fashion in the network. So the question for us is, could we do better than that by doing something more clever with the social network? And so we started our algorithm, and I'll come to uh, an interesting twist. But the main point here is that the algorithm was able to identify different youth than the ones that they they identified because it was looking for some strategic placement of those youth in the network because there are sub-communities, people who play basketball together, people who may be hanging out on the Venice Beach together. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to see different communities in a very... A strategic fashion rather than just, you know, you speak. there's no point in covering the same parts of the network over and over again. You got to go to the far reaches of the far corners of the network and send the information there. And so our algorithm was able to pick out these uh, nodes, these youth who were in these very strategic places in the network so that they could reach out to these communities that were not part of the sort of the main community. And so we, you know, we built this algorithm. We have tested this initially with pilot tests and showed that it performed better. You know, our algorithm led to higher HIV testing. And more recently have completed a test with 800 youth experiencing homelessness and showed that with our algorithm, there is a significant reduction in HIV risk behaviors like uh, condomless anal sex and so forth. Whereas the traditional approaches i.e. bringing in the most popular youth, the high degree nodes that did not lead to such significant reduction. So this is statistically now something that we are able to show. Now, let me come to the twist, going back to the question we had discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. So traditional computer science uh, literature in this topic starts with the assumption that the social network is given. If you are doing viral marketing via Facebook or something, makes sense, you know, you have the social network and you work with it. 
makes sense. Here, we are working with this group of youth. They're not, they're not on Facebook. This is, uh, you know, the network is not available to us. So mm-hmm. now the, the interesting problem becomes you don't have the network, but still you have to identify the key influencers in the network. And so that means you have to do some interesting sampling of the network in order to figure out who should be key influencers. So this is the point I was saying that these social impact problems are often in situations where there are vulnerable communities or marginalized populations where there's just not that kind of data available. And so then that leads to some interesting twists uh, on research problems or some fundamentally new research problems that traditional uh, you know, research threads have not pulled on because it's just not something that comes up in, in those areas. Does that make sense? It, it does. And in this case, specifically, one of those problems was around this sampling approach? Correct. So how do you, how do you uh, figure out what the social network may look like? Because you could go ahead and ask every single individual in the community who your friends are and build a network. That's very costly, very expensive. Mm-hmm. So could we just ask a sample, let's say 10% of the population, 15% of the population. So you only ask this question of who are your friends to the 15% of youth instead of all of the youth. And then based on just that small sample, uh, you say, okay, what what might the social network in this community look like? And based on that, autom- you know, figure out who are the key influencers in this community. Mm. It strikes me that that approach would be, you know, maybe good at kind of constructing the known part of the social network that you referenced earlier, but maybe less good at finding the unknown or lesser known parts of the social network. Like you mentioned, the you know, maybe the basketball network is strong and highly interconnected, but there's the beach part of the network that's less connected. That, that's not the case, though? No, it, it performs really well. And, you know, in comparison of uh, the algorithm, when the, you know, we could kind of study the algorithm by doing tests where, okay, we know the full network versus we don't know the full network. And we compared the performance and we showed that the sampling actually does really well. So there's, you know, it's able to pick up enough of the network because it doesn't need to reproduce the network. All it needs to do is to figure out who are the key influencers. So as long as based on the sample, it's able to identify that we are in good shape. But there are many other challenges that came up that, uh, you know, we had not anticipated before. And it was important that we actually do the test in the real world when, uh, you know, whereas um, if we didn't do the test, if we hadn't gone to the field and tried this algorithm out, we wouldn't have figured this out. So this lack of social network is number one. Another is that normally when we think about this uh, social influence and so forth, we assume that you bring in the seeds or you pick the influencers and the influencers will do their job because they are you know, viral marketing or what have you. <laughs> um, but the problem here is that these are youth under difficult circumstances. And so we try to invite them in, but you know they may not be able, I mean, they may not be able to afford the bus fare to come to the drop-in center, for example. Mm-hmm. So we may end up with a different group of people than the one we invited. And so you got to take into account these kinds of contingencies that normally wouldn't come up in a, a domain where these uh, community, you know, you don't have these kinds of um, vulnerable communities. So that's just to give you that 
you know, being, I mean, going back to the original point we were discussing, which is, uh, you know, doing work with social impact uh, leads to these very interesting new research challenges that we wouldn't have imagined going into the problem. Mm -hmm. And going back to that specific example, the approach that you identified in that research direction, is that something... Where does that end up landing in the, you know, and maybe this is just a, an academic semantics thing, but, you know, is that a social science research? Is that statistics research? Is that machine learning research? Does it even matter? <laughs> <laughs> no, those are, those are really fantastic questions. And on the one hand, as computer scientists, you know, we have to publish in our discipline. We have to make our mark in our discipline by showing that we're advancing the state of the art. So this is, uh, you know, this is definitely AI research. It's not pure machine learning, but it is definitely, it's it's in this area of agents and multi-agent systems, which I referred to earlier, which is my home community. Essentially, it's to try and un- understand the interactions of multiple agents. Hold so. it all the way back to your home, uh... Home that's right. That's right. That's right. So it's always so we can always show that we are making contributions there, and and certainly there's a role for machine learning and so on. But you are absolutely right. Then there's this interdisciplinary piece because then we can publish in social work uh, journals, uh, which is the work where you know you show the real impact that's going on. Mm-hmm. And then there's the piece in between, which is very fascinating because there are some things that fall through the cracks. Example is that. Um, how does information actually spread in a social network? Mm. Computer scientists build models saying information spreads by, for example, independent cascades. So, you know, I talk to you, you talk to somebody else, and information spreads in a cascade. Uh, social uh, work research just says, well, there's a network effect, but they don't necessarily build this model, kind of a detailed model of how information will spread. Computer scientists wouldn't go into the field and test the model because that's not their job. And social workers don't want to build the detailed model because that's not their discipline. And so exactly how does information spread in a social network? You know, is it this independent cascade model? Is it some other model? Uh, <laughs> and it's like nobody, I mean, no, it's, it's, it's outside scope for both communities. And these are open problems that fall through the cracks. I think these are the kinds of problems that we want to get at, and then we want to create places where we can publish this type of work. And you're exactly right that there's some kind of, you know, interdisciplinary space where we need to focus our attention on mm-hmm. to get, get, you know, it, it is science, <laughs> but it doesn't quite fall into any of the existing uh, disciplines. Models, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. You were also mentioning some work that you were doing in wildlife conservation. That is a, a topic that comes up. I wouldn't, I guess, frequently is not the right word, but we do touch on it uh, from time to time on the podcast. And some of our most uh, popular shows have been related to wildlife conservation. How are you working in that area? So, as you know, poaching is a massive problem around the world, species are being decimated. And so the question then is, in in national parks around the world, where we have small numbers of rangers, limited resources, and these vast areas to protect, can we give tools to the rangers to make their work easier Mm -hmm. and make the, you know, allow them to be more effective in their job? And so one of the ways is based on past poaching incidents that they report, 
can we predict where future poaching incidents may occur? Specifically, poachers kill wildlife or maim wildlife by putting traps. And it's just horrible to think about it. In my lecture one time, I had like this, uh, you know, elephant that was trapped using this uh, snare. And it's just like the lady in one of the, in the audience started crying. So then I felt like, okay, this is, this is, you know, too much for people to bear. And it is. And so anyhow, the point is, can we predict in advance who, you know, where these traps may be set? So you could imagine thousands and thousands of square kilometers of land to protect. And the poachers are setting up traps in a few of these places, not everywhere around in the whole park. So if we can predict in advance that, you know, if you go to this area, you're going to find traps, then that helps the rangers. Mm-hmm. The second thing we can do again is uh, improve the patrolling strategy to make recommendations on patrols so as to make them more effective. But the first part, which is the prediction part, is you know is something that we have actually deployed in the real world with the help of our partners uh, with World Wildlife Fund, Wildlife Conservation Society, Panthera, and other nonprofits, and shown that uh, you know it leads to a significant increase in the number of traps that they're able to capture. Mm-hmm. And did you observe similar, you know, types of things to the dynamics we were discussing earlier in terms of the interdisciplinary nature or the, you know, where innovation is happening and tackling these kinds of problems? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, this wildlife conservation domain, I uh, just as a side comment, it has allowed me to travel to places that I normally wouldn't go to as a tourist. And so it's a, a great excuse to go for, go to play different places like uh, to Uganda and Bangladesh and Malaysia and wonderful places in national parks. So it's the same uh, same types of things come up. For example, the rangers, you know, they go to you know they are searching through the parks for these snares and traps. And so you know they go to a certain area and they say, well, we didn't find anything here. When they say they found something, yes, they found something. But when they say we didn't find anything, it could just be that the trap was right there. That you know they just didn't see it because it might be a little well hidden, or had they walked just a little bit more, they could have found it. The data is very sparse because you know uh, this is victimless crime. Well, it's a si- not it's a silent victim uh, phenomenon in the sense that the animals are not calling back and saying you know that whatever you know. So basically, we have this problem that we have bias data, you only get data on poaching incidents where patrols have happened. You don't get data on anything else. So there's all these kind of uh, stra- you know, interesting phenomena in the data that we have to address in terms of making these predictions. Again, you know, going back to the point of you know, these are, these are uh, problems that are new and interesting. And the other problem then that comes up, going back to the topic of game theory, is that we are then trying to recommend patrols to the rangers. Mm-hmm. And the way uh, we want to do this is to say, you know, if we patrol in one place, the poachers are very clever and they will realize that you're, you know, you're going to be here again tomorrow. You've been patrolling this place. So they're clever. They'll go somewhere else. So you got to anticipate where they will go and sort of play this, you know, play one move ahead of them or something like that. So that's, mm-hmm. that's where the game theory starts to come in. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the other things that you've done kind of in this broad domain? So in recent work uh, that we have been doing as part of uh, the work we've done in Google Research India, 
we've been looking at adherence. So this is an issue that comes up in other work we've done with tuberculosis prevention. Essentially, there's a health program that is being run and you want people to adhere to the health program. I'll, I'll describe the one for this uh, work with an NGO called Arman that uh, does work with expecting and young mothers. The basic idea, so this is in India where the, there's the statistics of um, you know children who are born who may be uh, short you know who who may not get full weight and so forth is all uh, very high. So basically, you have a great need there to make sure that you deliver health messages to women in a timely fashion. So the way this NGO does this work is that they issue a phone call three minute in the voice of a friendly local neighborhood health worker to expecting moms who have registered with them saying, you know, you are in the sixth week of pregnancy. This is what you should expect. You are in the, you know, this is your, you know, your child is now two months old. Please register in this government program, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, there's a call that's given or two calls given every week. And they have shown in randomized control trials that women who listen to the information, actually there's a significant improvement in their health and baby's health. The challenge they face is that women may become low listeners over time. They may drop off of the program, Mm -hmm. which means that they will not benefit from the program. Where our work comes in is to be able to predict in advance which women are going to drop out of the program or become low listeners so that the NGO can go to those women, give them a live call ahead of time or encourage them to stay in the program so that they, they don't miss those calls. And we've built that software. We've shown that we're more than 80% accurate in identifying these women ahead of time. And then we've deployed the software and, you know, the NGO is using this information to call those women (laughs) ahead of time and make sure that they don't drop off. Mm -hmm. So this is an actual system that we were able to show that we can show benefit in terms of real life application. Mm -hmm. But this also comes up in other areas where, you know, there's adherence to medicine, you know, so people have to take their medicine every day. This happens, for example, for tuberculosis prevention. If we can predict in advance that this person is going to drop off of their adherence, then we can keep them engaged in the program. Mm -hmm. So these are uh, these are just some of the things. But there are other things we've looked at. Human preventing human wildlife conflict, for example, is another one. I'm curious in this Social good domain, you you mentioned just a couple of uh, adherence use cases. Is is there more or less of an ability to to reuse, you know, innovation from one domain to another similar domain because of the the human factors involved in, in the social good work? There are some core problems that seem to come up. You're right. So, for example, spreading information like we discussed in terms of social networks, that seems to be a problem that's common. Adherence problems, that's one of the you know uh, problems that's common. When it comes to you know wildlife conservation or you know the, these problems related to whether it's illegal poaching, illegal fishing, illegal uh, logging. I mean, there's sort of a common problems related to crimes against the environment in, in, in some ways. And so there are these broad classes of problems where there's some uh, carryover of techniques, although each domain may bring its own twist to the problem. Mm-hmm. And in each case, one of the things that is common is that we really want to go from getting the data all the way to deploying things in the field. Because in our view, unless you actually show social impact, 
is not quite AI for social impact. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> that rings true. <laughs> Because writing a paper by itself, you know, it is is not really AI for social impact. You know, it's it's like you've written a paper, wonderful, and and it's important to write and yeah. make contributions to science and you know AI and so forth. But if we say if we label it as AI for social impact, then we want to see the social impact. Right, right. Does that mean that when we see people talking about AI for social good and not AI for social impact, we need to be particularly careful about that wording? I, I mean, I started using the word social impact because I wanted to emphasize impact. But same thing for so AI for social good. I feel yeah, that you're doing good. You gotta show. You gotta actually see the good on the ground. If we just say it's AI for social good and a paper gets written, it's important to write those papers. It's important, but it's like job not fully done. We we got to see the final output in terms of social impact or the actual out, uh, you know, in our view, when we talk about AI for social impact, social impact has to be a first-class citizen of this universe. It is not like, well, there's the AI, we published the AI, and then social impact, well, that's just the application and it's not that important. That's not the way we think about it. Yeah. Yeah, I talk to a lot of people who are ML and AI practitioners or learners, and they broadly want to apply these newfound superpowers to, you know, affecting good in the world, but, you know, aren't really sure where to start or how to start or, you know, the accessing the data that they might use to solve a problem, you know, is, is challenging. Do you have any uh, is that a question that you get? Do you have any tips or thoughts on, you know, how folks should approach having an impact in this field? Uh, so my, uh, yes, indeed, that's a very important question that I get asked. And my answer is that you got to go to the problem and we can't be in our ivory towers or wherever we are and just say, well, here's a solution. Wouldn't it be nice if I can find a problem that fits this solution? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I learned about, some kind of machine learning technique. Let me go find a problem. I think it's in in my view. Go to the local nonprofits. Um, I mean, there's so many people doing absolutely inspiring work, and that's one of the things I find when I'm working in this. To be so inspired, you know, it's so inspiring to see these people out in the field doing. I mean, really amazing amounts of volunteer work, uh, or you know, really just trying to make an impact. And so. From them, if we can find out what is the problem where we could make a difference for them mm -hmm. and then try to give them the tool that would help them, that's the way I, uh, I have approached things. And that's the way, I mean, for example, at our uh, center here at Harvard, the Center for Research on Computation in Society, the goal is to talk to the local area nonprofits, understand from them what problems there are, and then build tools for that. That's exactly the approach we've also taken with uh, Google Research India, with the AI for social good, is to bring in nonprofits, understand. And it's sometimes the case that people may say, well, we are a nonprofit, but we don't need AI. Uh, we need, you know, something else. And that's fine too. You know, it's an AI is not a shine, you know, it's, it's not gonna solve all problems. We understand, you know, it, it, it may not be a solution at all in some cases. But in some cases it is, and in some cases there is. You know, the NGOs are sitting on some data that's valuable to them. They don't have the resources to actually themselves learn machine learning and, and, and apply those techniques. But they would love to understand, you know, would love to get our help. 
And that's where I find uh, that's the way to approach. So that's the advice I've given people mm-hmm. is, uh, is to find those uh, local nonprofits and then based on the needs that they have. And it may not succeed initially, but, you know, there will be somebody who you'll find who say, hey, I can I can make use of your talents and show, you know, have an impact on the world. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Millen, it's been wonderful chatting with you about some of the work that you're up to. Any uh, parting thoughts for folks that are watching this? Thank you, first of all, for inviting me. Thank you. I had a lot of fun uh, talking to you. You know, really awesome questions. Now, I think some of the points I just wanted to make, if you are interested in AI for social good, AI for social impact, this is work that requires us to step out of the lab. Clearly difficult in this time of the pandemic but <laughs> something you know as uh, something that we have to do and build those uh, interdisciplinary partnerships as we discussed mm-hmm. and um, start from the problem rather than starting from a solution i think those are things that i hope people will but i hope people will get interested in this area i hope this is an area that will thrive and something where we can actually bring AI to those who have not benefited from AI, which is perhaps the vast majority of the population on, you know, uh, in the globe. Great. Great. Thanks so much, Melan. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Very cool. That was a great conversation. Amari, are you still there? I definitely see your, we've got this conference going on next week. I don't know how much of this stuff tomorrow, not next week, but soon in October. And Amari commented about how, you know, this would be uh, interesting to work in. I try to keep this a little on the shorter side than usual so that maybe that we've got some flexibility to work it in. I still don't know what that means, but, you know, something to think about. Uh, I do think it'd be right in line with uh, what we're going for there. Yeah. But we'll we'll be in touch with you on that. Um, I think uh, I really appreciated the, the opportunity to chat with you. Great conversation. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.